I told you that we went on vacation this past week. We, uh, we went on a cruise. My wife, Corey, and I did. Uh, we have four kids, and so we were trying to get as far away from them as possible. And I'm just kidding. We didn't do that. Um, she'll get mad at me that I just said that. But um, we went on a cruise, and the cruise was amazing. The, the worst part of our trip was the flights to and from Miami. Uh, we drove last Sunday up to Cincinnati to drop. I know that's the opposite direction of Miami. We, we drove to Cincinnati to drop our kids off with my dad. Um, so he was going to take care of the kids uh, while we were gone. And so we left Cincinnati last, last Monday morning. We, let, we got up about 4 o'clock, went to the greater Cincinnati, North Kentucky, International Regional Airport, and caught a flight. Uh, and, and, and I knew that it was going to be a little tight making our connection because here is the, the psyche of, of the airlines for us to get, now we live in Atlanta, right? We're going to Miami. We drove to Cincinnati and caught a flight from Cincinnati to Detroit to Miami. Okay. That seems really around the barn door to get there, but that's how we did it. And I knew that we were going to be a little tight on our connection time in Detroit. And so I had talked to my wife, hey, listen, if there's any way we can not check a bag on the flight. Now, I'm an idiot. We're going on a cruise, right? But I said, hey, if it's possible for us to carry on our bags onto the plane, we won't have to worry in this short connection time in Detroit. We won't have to worry about missing, you know, the bags not making it to the cruise. But then my fear was that, hey, we may miss the connector there in Detroit. And so I have what we like to call Isaac's luck. That's my last name. Um, you may have some variation of that, but here's how Isaac's luck works. If I get in a lane of traffic, it will shut down. If I get into a line at the grocery store, the girl will run out of money in her register till. It just will happen. Then she'll take a break and then come back 30 minutes later to get her register open back up. I went to Krispy Kreme one time and ordered a glazed donut. I was very just disciplined. I ordered a glazed donut. They were out. Krispy Kreme, right? Went to Arby's. Got a number one. They're out of curly fries. Like, this is Isaac's luck, okay? So if, it's, if it can happen, it's going to happen to me. So we get on our flight in Cincinnati with our carry-on bags. We get on the flight, and we kind of roll away from the gate, and then the pilot tells us that we're going to be delayed for a little while. So originally, we had a little under an hour to make our connecting flight in Detroit, which is not, it's, it's doable. We, we knew that. That was doable if we didn't have any delays. So now we're delayed, and now I'm thinking, okay, this is bad. And just before we got on the plane in Cincinnati, they told us that our bags, our carry-on bags, because we had stuffed them with about 900 pounds worth of stuff since we weren't checking bags, they told us they were a little big to fit in the, in the overhead compartment so that we're going to need to gate check those, which means we would get them at the plane when we deplaned in Detroit and then take those with us on to Miami. And so we had gate checked our bags. And so now I'm thinking, okay, now we're starting late. I have to wait by the plane for the very efficient baggage handlers to get my bags out from under the plane, bring them to me at the side of the plane, and then go make my connecting flight and get to Miami in time. And I knew there were no connecting flights after my flight in order that I would still be able to make the boat. Okay, so now I'm getting a little nervous. So the flight takes off, and I'm using the GoGo in-flight internet. It's like it's only about $1,000 a minute, and so I use that to get access to know that I am landing at gate B5, okay? And our connecting flight from Detroit to Miami is flying out of gate A76. If you've ever been to Detroit, let me tell you how long that is. It's about 11 miles from B5 to A76. So here's how, here's through my brain right here. I'm thinking, okay, what's plan B for vacation this week? Because we're going to spend it in Detroit is what I'm thinking. So... 
we, we, we finally land, the pilot made up no time in the air, and so now our hour of, of, of time has shrunk down to a little less than 25 minutes. So here was the plan. Corey, you run from B5 to A76 because when, I forgot one thing. When we checked in in Cincinnati, we had confirmed seats in Detroit, but they wouldn't give us a boarding pass with a seat assignment. We had to get those at the gate in Detroit, okay? So I said, Corey, you run to the gate. You run to A76 and get our boarding passes with our seat assignments while I wait by the plane and get our bags, and then I will run and meet you, Okay? Perfect plan, right? It makes total sense. So she takes off. She's, we were in the back of the plane, too, which we had to wait on everybody to get out. Isaac's luck. So we, we get off the plane. She takes off and, and runs to A76. And I stand where I was told to stand by this little elevator door where our bags would come up. Except that as I'm standing there, I hear this noise. If this was not wood and it was metal, here was the noise I would hear. And that hurt worse than I thought it would. And so I... I'm thinking, that's probably not the sound that you're expecting to hear for your bags to come up. And then this lovely Delta attendant says, I'm so sorry, the elevator door is broken. <laughs> so your bags are going to be let off down by the plane. Well, now I'm at the end of that line because I was at the front of the elevator door line. So I'm standing at the end of the line. I'm waiting patiently, cussing under my breath. And so I finally get to the plane and there sits my bag. No Corey bag, just my bag. At this point, I'm going to lose my bag because if she doesn't have clothes for the cruise, I'm not having clothes for the cruise. (laughs) So then the lady says, there actually are a few more bags that are going to come up the elevator door. They've gotten it fixed now. I said, great. Now I'm at the end of that line because I'm standing down here next to the plane. So I get all the way up to the elevator door. And they said, I'm so sorry, it's actually still broken. Your bag is down by the plane. I am not making up one single detail of this this story. I get back down to the plane and I get my wife's bag, which was a leopard print bag, by the way. I take off running from B5 to A76. I get down in between the terminals and there's supposed to be this awesome train that takes you between terminals that speeds things up. Except the train is not sitting there and it says it won't be there for another three and a half minutes. I don't have three and a half minutes to stand there and wait. So I go running underneath the Detroit airport, pulling my bag with the leopard print bag on top of it. Everybody's looking at me like I'm an idiot. And so I go running. I get into the A concourse and I see that I only have 47 gates to go to get down to where my wife is. And at that exact moment, she decides to send me a text message of encouragement and and, and how much she loves me. And all it reads is you have 10 minutes max and then I'm leaving you. No, (laughs) except for that last part. That was implied. But sometimes texting, you lose the implication there. So 10 minutes max. So I take off sprinting through the A terminal. I mean, as fast as I can possibly go. I knocked over children and and older people. And I finally get to where I can see A76 just before I passed out. And there was a little one of those escalators that's flat. So I don't even know what it's called, like a moving sidewalk. It was the blessing from God, manna from heaven falling there on the ground in the A concourse. And I get onto this sidewalk and just stand there for a moment and catch my breath. And then nearly tripped and broke my leg getting off of the moving sidewalk because I was trying to move at a rate of speed the moving sidewalk was not moving at. I get to the gate and Corey's sitting by the gate patiently waiting so that we could get on our flight and make it to Miami to get on our cruise. Now, 
what started as an hour of time in between our flights ended up being really no more than about 15 or 20 minutes. It seemed impossible. It really did. I mean, my experience in travel has told me that there's no possible way that I can make it in all the circumstances that were required. Because she had our seat assignments up there. I had our bags back here. We've got broken elevator doors and all kinds of craziness. But we got on the plane. We were like the last people on the plane. And we finally take off. We get to vacation. But it seemed impossible. And that's really what we're talking about today is these impossible situations in our lives That we have personal history, we understand the dynamics at play so that we know that these things cannot happen. So if you've got a Bible, flip with me to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to continue our Storytellers series that we have been on for the last couple weeks. Pastor Mark, our senior pastor at both Mount Perrin and North locations, was here last week and did an awesome job just uh, talking about the story of Abraham and really leading us into a powerful response time. And Today we're going to continue this series talking about some impossible stories If you're in Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to be in verse 29, and this is what it says. By faith, the people, this is God's people, passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. Verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. Now, there's two different stories at play here. The first is that you have the Egyptians coming out of captivity in Egypt. The Egypt, I'm sorry, the, the Hebrew people, they're coming out of captivity in Egypt. And these Hebrew people, these God's chosen people, were being led by a man named Moses. And God had said to Moses out in this burning bush experience, he said, go and set my people free. I will be the one to bring them out of captivity. I want you to go and lead them out as, as I set them free. And so Moses goes, leads the people. They're, they're there interacting. He's there interacting with Pharaoh. There's plagues that are a part of this story. You can read it. It's an incredible story. And So God's people eventually, Pharaoh says, you can go free. And after they leave, he then has a change of heart. And he says, no, armies, I want you to go and chase after them. And so now God's people are between their freedom out in front of them and the armies that are chasing behind them. And they come up to the Red Sea. So now there's an obstacle in front of them. There's the Red Sea in front of them. There's the armies of their enemies chasing behind them. And they are stuck. This is an impossible situation. There's no way out. They can't get away. They're they're marching. Just uh, Some estimates say as many as 2 million people kind of marching out in the desert of all ages. They've been in captivity. They've made bricks and things. They're not fighters. They're not soldiers. And so they're in the middle of an obstruction that can't be moved. They can't swim across the Red Sea and the enemies that are chasing behind them. Very impossible situation. And then we read in Exodus chapter 14 what's referred to. I'm going to read a couple of verses of Scripture. Exodus chapter 14 Verse 21, it'll be on the screens if you don't have your Bible with you. This is what it says. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, and all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the, in the morning, watch... I'm sorry, and in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of the cloud looking down on the Egyptian forces. He threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Hang on to that statement. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea 
The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now this is an incredible story. It speaks to this impossible situation with no hope for survival and victory. They were trapped. They had no way out. And then you flash forward because the people getting out of captivity was not the end of the story for God's people. They were coming out of captivity to eventually get into the land that had been promised to their father Abraham, which Pastor Mark talked about last week. So they're heading towards the promised land, but they're coming out of captivity. And then they get across the Red Sea and they get into the desert. And they spend 40 years in the desert because of some disobedience. And Moses, their leader, dies off. Now, we just read that they, they, they believed in the power. Of, uh, they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. But Moses eventually kind of leads them astray. And so Moses doesn't ever get to enter the promised land. And the, the people that were of his generation, they don't get to enter the promised land. And so they're out in the desert now for a number of years. And at the end of that time, a new guy takes kind of reign of leadership for the, the children of Israel. And his name is Joshua. We have a book in the Bible named the book of Joshua that's really a lot of his story and the story of the people of Israel through his leadership. And so what you have is Joshua takes control and eventually leads them into, leads the children of Israel, those that are left, leads them into this land that God has promised them. They get into the promised land, and now these, this nation, this people of former slaves, of former brickmakers, they have to now be an army to take hold of the land, the promised land that God had already said was theirs to have. And so Joshua leads them, and the first battle that they really come to is the city of Jericho. Now Jericho is surrounded by this incredible walled city. It's this incredible walled city. It's, it's surrounded by a really tall and thick wall to, to keep the enemies out and the people in. And so God says to these people, here's the strategy. It is, without a doubt, the worst military strategy in the history of mankind. He says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take all the people, and you're going to walk around the city for six days, one time, in complete and utter silence. You're not going to say a word. You're just going to walk around the city. And then when you get done walking, you're going to go back to camp, and you're going to sit and wait. And I have always said, when I read this story, I don't get confused about the walking around the wall part. I don't think I would get hung up there, but I think that in between times, sitting around the fire, talking to the other guys in our camp about this strategy, we're thinking, where's the battering ram? Where's the fire that we're going to use to smoke them out, right? Where's the weapons that we're going to use? But no, God just said, walk around the city one time every day for six days and don't say a word. And they do that. And then there's some different instructions for day seven. And this is what it says about those instructions in Joshua chapter six, beginning in verse 15. It says, on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. So now on this day, they marched seven times around the city. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. At the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Skip to verse 20. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpets... The people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city. Every man straight before him, and they captured 
the city. Now, several things occurred to me while I was reading these two passages. Now that we've looked at Exodus chapter 14 and Joshua chapter 6, we see these two stories tied together. But there's a, a couple things that jumped out at me. First, God had promised to Moses that he, God, not Moses, would be the one to deliver the people out of Egypt. And yet when we read this story, we see Moses as the guy, the primary player of delivering the people. And so if Moses were in control, he leads them out. There's the Red Sea. There come the enemies. I can understand why if I'm following behind Moses or even if I'm Moses, I'm thinking, "Uh uh-oh, we've messed up. Because we were fine when we were in Egypt making bricks. I mean, they didn't treat us great, but nobody was trying to kill us, right? And so now they're going to come and destroy us all or we're going to get stuck and we're going to drown as we try to flee them when we go into the Red Sea. But if we remember and we hang on to the promise that God had said, I will take my people out of Egypt, then we understand that God was on the hook for the delivering work. God was on the hook for the the work that needed to be done to make sure that those people were saved. And so the the, the trap kind of feeling that we have here, understanding that they couldn't go anywhere, this impossibility that they were experiencing is superseded or overcome by the original promise that God had made. In, in the story of Joshua, God said to Joshua in Joshua chapter 6, verse 2, which is 13 verses before we just started reading, before he gives in the strategy, before the people march around the wall even one time, this is what it says in Joshua chapter 6, verse 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. Now think about that. See, I've given Jericho into your hand. No, you haven't, God. The wall's still standing. The king is still there. The men of valor are still there waiting on us to come and attempt to destroy them so that they can destroy us. And yet, the promise of God leads them towards a situation that seems impossible. There's something that's superseding. There's something that's more powerful than the situation that seems impossible. And it's the power and the promise of God. And so when they come up against the Red Sea with the enemies chasing behind, it was God's promise of deliverance that caused him to act on their behalf. And so when they come to the city of Jericho and they're seeing the wall that's before them and they see the city that's in front of them and they want to take hold of the city, they don't have to worry that, It seems impossible. It seems insurmountable because the promise of God that the city was theirs overcomes the circumstances that seem impossible. And so as I think about my life and I think about the things that I face, the things that I experience that I think sometimes are impossible. It causes me to kind of pause and look and see, are there things that God has already promised Are there things that I already know about God and his nature that might make the situations that I see that seem impossible be a little more possible? I looked up the word impossible because that's what I thought we should do. And so the word impossible means not able to occur, exist, or be done. So I don't know who said that, but somebody said that, and that's the word That's the definition of the word. So if we look at these things that look impossible, we're understanding that it's something that's not able to occur or exist or be done. And and my question to that, I kind of already asked it, is says who? Who says that something's impossible? Who gets to decide which things are possible and which things are impossible? Think about the things that we know around us. Think about the things that you look in your life right now And if I were to say, hey, I'm going to come and I'm going to step off of this stage, but I'm not going to hit the ground because I'm just going to float right over top of you. 
You go, that's impossible. How do you know it's impossible? Because of your past experience. You know, there are certain things going on in our, in our atmosphere. There's, there's gravity. There's obviously my body weight. Um, no jokes there. And so there's some things at play here that would make it impossible for me to float over top of you if I were to step off the stage. Because you are aware of some things, some circumstances, some forces at play, some personal history that tells you if I step off of the stage, I'm going to quickly hit the ground. Right? And so you're relying on what you know to tell you the things that are possible and tell you what things are impossible. And yet I wonder if sometimes it's our perspective that needs to be changed to really define which situations are possible and which situations are impossible. Instead of looking at the things that we think we know, are there things that maybe we could know or do know but haven't really thought about? Is there a perspective change that allows us to focus not on the ground that is to come, and this is a terrible example, But maybe there are things, instead of a wall, that we understand the God that promised us the city. Maybe instead of a sea and an army, we focus on a God that we sang about this morning who has angel armies. That there's no one, there's nothing that we have to fear. That the weak are made strong by the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. That never once, we've been singing about it all day, has God ever let us down. It's his faithfulness that assures us that the situations that we think are impossible are actually possible because of his power. It's these earthly factors, these earthly things that make us think that things are impossible. So here's what I want you to do. Close your eyes. Don't fall asleep. Close your eyes real quick. Nobody looking around. Nobody's talking. Nobody's doing anything. Just close your eyes and you're thinking about your own life. What are the things in your life that you want to happen, need to happen, need God to do, but they seem impossible? Just right now, you're thinking, nobody's calling them out, nobody's raising their hand. This is not a test. Just in your life, what are the things that need to happen right now in your life? You need God to do this or do that. You need God to show up. You need these things to happen for you, but they seem impossible. I want you to open your eyes. Why do they seem impossible? I wrote down some possible reasons that they may seem impossible to you. Other people, there are other people in the way, other people involved, and you can't control them. Time, there's not enough time to get it done. It needs to happen, but it takes this amount of time, and we don't have that much amount of time, so it can't happen. It's impossible. Money, it takes this amount of money to get done the things that we need to get done, and we don't have that amount of money, so it's impossible. Space or gravity or these other factors that we talk about, whatever those things may be. People, strength, weaknesses, either personal strengths or weaknesses or other people's strengths or weaknesses. Maybe there's some things at play here. And when you think about the things that you need to happen in your life, you need God to show up and do. When you think about those things, there are some blocks. There's some Red Sea in front of you. There's some walls in front of you. And it's money and it's time and it's other people. It's the things you're not good at. It's the things that they're good at. It's the things you're good at, but the things they're not good at that you need from them and we think those things are now impossible because of these earthly factors that are at play and let me say this none of the things that we just mentioned matter in the economy of god not one of those things the things that we just said were the reasons something's impossible none of those things matter i wrote down a few of these things He used a little boy and one of five rocks to bring down a giant. We're talking about David. 
You can read about it in the book of 1 Samuel. David brings down a giant. He brings down Goliath with one little boy and one of the five rocks that he picked up out of the river. Never understood why he had to take five rocks. He only needed the one. He called a disciple, Peter, to get out of the boat and to walk on water. He used the lunch of another little boy and the disciples to gather it all up, to put it in the hands of Jesus and make lunch for thousands of people. He healed a blind man by spitting in the dirt and making mud. He used a scaredy cat disciple, Peter, to preach to thousands on the day of Pentecost and launch the church. He rolled back water to the left and to the right to let his people cross, and then he swallowed up their enemies in the midst of that same water. He brought down a wall to allow his people to take the city that he'd already promised them was theirs. He's healed people sicker than you. He's delivered addicts worse than you. He's saved sinners with worse pasts than you. None of the things that you think are impossible are impossible in the economy of God. Because see, impossible is a mindset of I can't. I can't walk off the stage. I'll fall. It's impossible. I can't get that new job because I don't have the skill set that they're looking for. It's impossible. I can't get out of debt. I don't make enough money and I have too many obligations. I can't save my marriage because they won't listen. I can't Hang on to my kids because they're rebelling against me and everything I ever taught them. I can't. It's impossible. It's a mindset of I can't. And I think what I read in Scripture, and what I understand to be the truth of the economy of God, is that God's power turns I can't into why can't. Why can't you get the job? Why can't you get out of debt? Why can't your marriage be saved? Why can't your kids come home? Why can't you be healed? It's a mindset change. It takes the I can't of impossibility to the why can't of the possibility and the power of God. It's a mindset change. It's a perspective change. It's changing my focus away from the factors that would keep it impossible. To understanding that I serve a God who makes it possible. You have to trust that when God says he'll deliver the people, water can't stop him. You have to trust that when God says you have the city, a wall can't stop him. And I don't know what stands between you and the promises of God, but I promise you those things can't stop God. Because God's power changes impossibility. It changes from I can't to why can't. But here is where I left myself this week as I was preparing for this. I've prayed prayers that went unanswered. I just used some incredible examples. We pray for healing and people we love still die. We pray for restoration and reconciliation of marriage and divorce still comes. We pray that we get out of debt and yet another bill shows up that we weren't anticipating. And so sometimes we get focused on the I can't mentality, the I can't impossibility And we think that proves something about God's power. And I'm here to tell you it's not. I've used this story a lot. I don't ever want to overindulge this story or make you sick of hearing it. But it's my story and it's all I've got. It taught me a lot about the promises of God. But my mom got cancer about four years ago. She was young. She was healthy. 
got stage four colon cancer, and she battled for about two years before passing away, and she's been, she's been uh, passed now about two years. And as we were praying for God to heal her, and we believed, and I, I got the opportunity to speak at her funeral, and, and, and I was confronted with the idea that we had prayed and believed that God would heal her, and we were leaning into the promise that God can heal sick people. I read the verses in Scripture that talked about the power of God to heal. And someone said something to me that was incredibly profound as I prayed and kind of sought the Lord for what he would have me to understand about why my mom, who loved God with all of her heart, had passed away as we prayed for her healing. This is what he said. He said, read the Bible. Every person Jesus ever healed eventually died of something else. What does that teach me about the power of God? It teaches me that anytime God, through the power of Jesus Christ, or God on his own, healed somebody, it wasn't about that person being healed. It was to demonstrate that he had the power to do it. Because they eventually died of something else. They weren't healed forever that they would never die from something. They were healed in that moment to demonstrate that Jesus can spit in dirt and make mud and a blinded eye can be opened. It was something to demonstrate to us that if you believe God can then you never have to worry that he can't. Again, we've, we've used all kinds of examples today, but maybe you've had unanswered prayers and you think that proves that God can't do it or he won't do it. And I think all that proves is that he hasn't done it yet. And he may not do it like you want it done. He may not heal the person that's sick that you need healed today. He may not restore the marriage that you're praying so hard will be restored today. And it may never happen like you want it to happen, but it doesn't prove that God can't. And this is going to be a terrible run-on sentence, but this is just the best way I can explain it. I'm going to ask him to put it up on the screens. Just because he hasn't doesn't mean he won't. And just because he isn't doesn't mean he can't. Just because he hasn't done it yet doesn't mean he won't do it. Just because he isn't doing it now doesn't mean he can't do it. Scripture tells us that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which assures me that if God ever did it, he can do it today. And so you have some things going on in your life that you believe are impossible. You think there's no way God can heal this, forgive this, accept this, show mercy here. There's no way God can deliver this thing, this person. No way God can restore this brokenness. And I would say to you, yes, he can. I would say to you, there's nothing that proves he can't. It's a mindset change that God's power changes I can't to why can't. And I think you have to change that mindset. I'm going to ask the band to come. I think you have to change your mindset. I think you have to change your focus. You have to change the things that you are looking at. What are the factors stopping you? You're focused on the wall instead of focusing on the city that's been promised to you. You're focused on the Red Sea in front of you or the enemy behind you when actually God's promise is on the other side of the desert, on the other side of the water. The water can't stop you because God's promised his people that they get the land all the way on the other side of the desert. So the water won't stop you. And the desert won't stop you because the promised land awaits. I don't know what your roadblock is. 
I don't know what your Jericho wall is. I don't know what your Red Sea is. I don't know what the enemy chasing behind you is. But here's what I promise you. I promise you. God's power is enough. God's promise is enough. Just because he hasn't doesn't mean he won't. Just because he isn't doesn't mean he can't. I don't know your individual story, probably. I know a few. But here's what I think impossibility boils down to. I don't think it boils down to whether or not it's actually possible. Because I think what we've discovered today is that with God, all things are possible. I think scripture actually tells us that. I think today is about changing your focus. Changing my focus. It's about taking our eyes off of those things that stand in our way. And putting our eyes on the God who promised us. The God who extends to us his power. The God who's given us the city that stands behind a measly little wall that comes down at the sound of trumpets and shouts. The God who stands on the other side of a Red Sea that is split at the raised arm of a man of God. What's impossible in your life? What is it that you have in your life you desire God to do, but it's impossible? It can't be done. There's not enough time. There's not enough money. I'm not the right person. They're the right person. I need help. I need somebody. I need their strengths. I I don't need my weaknesses. It's impossible. It can't be done. What do you need to focus on? Where do you need to turn your attention to? And what do you need to turn your attention away from? I need to turn my attention away from my enemies chasing behind put my eyes on the land that's been promised I need to keep my mouth shut and walk in silence for six days instead of telling God that this is a dumb plan and when given the opportunity I need to shout in victory before it comes he said shout for the Lord has given you the city and yet the wall still stood there What do you need God to do? But it seems impossible. For the next few minutes, I just want us to focus on the goodness of God. The promises of God. The power of God that assures us that He can when we can't. That He will when we won't. Man's going to lead us in a song. I'm just going to ask you kind of to sit where you're at. Quietly meditate on the Lord. Just thinking through the things that we've discussed today. What is it that God's saying in your heart? What is it that God's trying to say to you? Reveal to you? He wants you to know that he can do it. If you'll trust him. You know what we read in Hebrews chapter 11? You know why these people are included in this chapter? Because by faith, the people passed through the Red Sea on dry land. 
It doesn't matter if the wall rolled back, the water rolled back and made walls. I'm assuming that there's still still some fear walking in between the walls of water. Anybody ever done that? Did water just stood up in the river behind your house and you're like, you know, I'm just going to walk across it. Yeah, I mean, it could swallow me up, drown me. That's no big deal. Let's go. By faith, they took a step and they walked out. By faith, verse 30 said, the walls of Jericho fell. But how did they fall? Because the people were obedient to the promise, the strategy of God to walk around in silence while their enemies stood at the top of the wall and watched them. To shout, to blow the trumpets when commanded to do so. And the walls came down. There's a fear in my heart that I believe I would be the one walking in silence, looking at the top of the wall, waiting on them to shoot me. Screaming, but maybe not screaming as loud for fear that I might stand out in hopes that I might can run away faster than the other people. I don't have to be the fastest. I just can't be the slowest, right? Faith. Do I have enough faith to obey God? Do I have enough faith to cross on the dry land where water just sat? Do I have faith to surround the walls in hopes that they'll come down because God's already promised that the city is mine? The situation's not about whether it's impossible or possible. The situation is, do I trust God enough that he meant what he said? Do I trust him enough? Do I have faith to believe that he is who he says that he is? Just because he hasn't doesn't mean he won't. Just because he isn't now doesn't mean he can't. God, I pray that you would take what we have heard today. Stir in our hearts a greater reality of who you are. Help us to see you instead of the obstacles in our way. Help us today to trust you more. In Jesus' name we pray. that's our prayer today you would give us faith to believe faith to trust that when we're weak we would find strength in you that when we're hopeless we would find hope in you that when we're uncertain we would find certainty in you God that when we see a red sea in front of us and enemies chasing behind that we would see dry land and a way across that when we see a wall as an obstacle We would see the plan. We would trust you to find deliverance and victory there. There is nothing that is impossible with you, God. So God, today, it's not about what's possible and what's impossible. It's do I trust in you? Do I have faith to believe that you are who you say you are? That you do what you say you'll do? Just because you haven't doesn't mean you won't. Just because you aren't right now doesn't mean you can't. God, that you can be trusted. We can put our faith and our hope in you. We thank you, God. We thank you for the promises that you give. We thank you for the power that you display. We thank you for the examples of your word that we can lean into to know that nothing is impossible with you. Let us live that out as we leave this place in a few moments.
know that nothing is more powerful than you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated.